Please stand as we prepare to read from God's Word this morning. If you would, reach for your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew, and you can open it up. We're reading from Luke chapter 23, and we'll be reading verses 32 through 38. Again, Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 38. Pastor Bruce is starting a new message series. You can see the posters uh, around the sanctuaries as well, called Cries from the Cross, Finding Hope in the Last Words of Jesus. So again, this morning's message is titled, A Cry for Forgiveness, which is exactly where we're at uh, with Jesus uh, on the cross as we follow along as I read Luke 23, verses 32 through 38. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek Latin and Hebrew. This is the King of the Jews. Please bow your heads and pray with me, please, this morning. Father in heaven, thank you that we can approach you, seeking you through your Son, Jesus. We come to you directly by the blood and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made for us, that he shed for us. And Father, we praise you for all that you have done for us, Father. Lord, allow all of us to grab hold of you. Show us how we can cry for forgiveness and receive you, Jesus, as our Savior. How we can be saved, Father. Father, be with Pastor Bruce. May your spirit be upon him this morning. Empower him. Allow you to speak through him. If there's anyone here this morning that has not placed their faith in you, and chosen to trust you as Savior. I pray that this morning would be the morning that that would occur. Thank you for all of us here. It is not an accident, Lord, you've drawn us here in this wonderful house of worship as we celebrate and worship you this morning. I pray for that, and thank you that you are with us this morning in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see each and every one of you here this morning. Glad you have chosen to come and worship with our church family here at Glenwood. And thank you to John and Kirk for that special, and thank you to Randy for leading us in our scripture reading. As he said, we want to begin a brand new series this morning. In fact, it will be a seven-week series taking us all the way up to Easter Sunday in April. And uh, we're calling this series Cries from the Cross. Finding Hope in the Last Words of Jesus While He Was on the Cross. You know, the last words of a dying person are rather significant. They're important. In fact, when a person comes face to face with death, 
their last comments are often, it, they often reveal what that person really believed in life. It often revealed what their values were in life. And so we tend to hang on to the last dying words of those closest to us. I don't know if any of you have had the privilege to, to be at the side of somebody, of a loved one, a friend or whatever, when they passed on, when they died, and perhaps they were able to speak at that time, and perhaps you even remember what they said. Uh, we tend to pass on the final words of famous people for the next generation. For example, P.T. Barnum. Uh, yes, that famous circus owner asked before he died, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? Kind of reveals what his values were in life. Thomas Hobbes, uh, who was an English philosopher and skeptic, said, I am about to take a leap into the dark. Humphrey Bogart's last words were, I should have never switched from scotch to martinis. Robert Childers who was an Irish nationalist, and when standing before the firing squad said, take a step forward, lads, it will be easier that way. You guys get that? No, I thought that was funny. Leonardo da Vinci, when surveying his life's work, said, I have offended God and mankind because my works did not reach the quality it should have. Conrad Hilton, the founder of the Hilton Chains, uh, Hilton Hotels chain set on his deathbed. By the way, he's the, the great, he's the grandfather of the, you know, the celebrities who have no abilities, but yet they're always in the news. <laughs> you, you know who we're talking about. Anyways, Conrad Hilton said, leave the shower curtain on the inside of the tub. And then D.L. Moody, the American evangelist and founder of Moody Church and College said, I see their earth receding and heaven is opening. God is calling me. And so last words are important, and over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at the last words of Jesus Christ as he was hanging on the cross. Most of the time, while Jesus was on the cross, it was spent in silence, and yet while Jesus' body was in shock and pain, and while his throat was parched with thirst, he spoke seven different times. The first three statements took place between the hours of 9 a.m. and 12 o'clock noon. And then from noon to about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, darkness covered the land. And from about 3 p.m. on, Jesus spoke the final words that he said on the cross. These seven sayings of Jesus, they deserve our attention. They reveal the heart of our Savior for the people he was redeeming, which includes you and I. They also provide hope to a generation, to people such as us, who seek purpose and meaning even today. And so let's look at Jesus' first cry from the cross. It's a, uh, it's a prayer. It's a prayer of forgiveness for the unforgivable. Jesus' first cry from the cross is a prayer for forgiveness for the unforgivable. Now, Let's just be honest here. Forgiveness sounds like a marvelous idea until you're the one who has to do it. Would you agree with that? I mean, how do you forgive the quote, unforgivable? Why should you be the one to forgive when you are the one who was wronged? When you were the one who was offended and hurt by somebody else? Must you forgive someone who is out to destroy you? 
Well, perhaps nowhere do we have our questions about forgiveness answered more clearly than right here at the cross with the first saying of Jesus Christ. Jesus' first cry on the cross was one for forgiveness for his enemies when he prayed simply, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. During his ministry, Jesus often forgave those who needed his mercy. And now on the cross, Jesus' heart was burdened for those who had instigated and committed history's greatest crime. He prayed, if you can believe it, that the unforgivable might be forgiven. So what do we learn from all this? What do we take away? What what does this mean for us today, over 2,000 years later? What do we learn from this shocking prayer by Jesus as he hung on the cross? I think there's three truths that we learn. In fact, three truths that just kind of jump out at us, if you will. And that's what I want us to focus on for the remainder of our time here this morning. I want you to see three different things or three different truths from this prayer of forgiveness for his enemies that Jesus cried out on the cross. Notice number one, Jesus' prayer for forgiveness. It shows us Jesus' great confidence in God. It shows us his great confidence in God. In the first cry from the cross, Jesus cries out to his Father, his heavenly Father, in prayer. Now, this is rather significant. Jesus' public ministry started with prayer at his baptism. Some of you may remember that. And now it is closing in prayer at his crucifixion. But don't miss the full context in which Jesus cries out to his Father in prayer. Look at what it says when you back up a couple of verses in Luke 23. Notice what it says there in verses 31 through 34. It says, Now there were also two others, that is criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then notice the very next word, then. It was then, it was then that Jesus said, Father, forgive them. So when did Jesus cry out to his Father? Well, it was when Jesus was crucified on the cross. He cried out when man had done his very worst. These words were spoken in the first moments of his crucifixion. Yet in the very moment of his greatest agony, Jesus prayed for forgiveness for his enemies. And Jesus prayed, get this, not for justice, but for mercy. And what's really interesting here, the verb tense in this prayer that Jesus prays, it implies that Jesus prayed this prayer repeatedly. He prayed repeatedly for their forgiveness. Which means that this wasn't just a a one-time request on behalf of Jesus. In other words, when the nails tore through his hands, sending jolts of pain throughout his body, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. When the cross dropped into place between two criminals, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. When the Roman soldiers divided up his garments below the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, Forgive them. When the religious leaders sneered at him and when the mob mocked him, Jesus replied, Father, forgive them. Now, I don't know about you, 
But we kind of probably ought to step back from a moment from this scene. Because this is a shocking prayer, to say the least. After all, when man had done his very worst, Jesus prays to his Father, Father, forgive them. So how could Jesus do such a thing? How could he pray for forgiveness for the unforgivable? Well, I think one reason why is because of his great confidence in God the Father. Did you notice how Jesus addressed God in this prayer? He doesn't address him as God. He doesn't address him as creator. He uses one word to address him. He called God Father. Jesus could call God Father while being treated unjustly because he knew he could count on his Father's blessing and presence at a time when man was doing the worst to him. Think about it. The injustices of his enemies and the betrayal of his friends did not shatter his confidence in God the Father. Now that's amazing. Jesus still had the confidence to cry out and to do so to his heavenly Father. Although his personal rights were violated and his reputation was being trashed, By crying out to his heavenly Father, Jesus shows us that his faith in God remained unshaken by all the suffering he endured at the hands of his enemies. Now what's interesting here is according to Roman historians, it was very common for those who were crucified to utter words of wrath towards those who were involved in the execution you do realize that Jesus wasn't the only one crucified in this time during Rome's history. Many people were crucified beyond just Jesus. And so it was rather common when you were being crucified that those people would just shout insult. They would shout out and attack those who were crucifying them. In fact, Seneca, the Roman philosopher in statement, recounts that those crucified would normally curse everybody including their own mothers and fathers. Cicero, another Roman philosopher and orator, writes that the executioners would sometimes even cut off the tongues of the criminals so that the soldiers would not have to listen to the vindictive verbiage from those they were crucifying. But I want you to notice how Peter describes Jesus' response towards his enemies In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, look at what it says. It says, when he, who's the he? When Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, notice it, what he continued to do. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In other words, all the while Jesus was being mocked and sneered, all the while his enemies were torturing him and crucifying him, he did not retaliate. Instead of that, he simply entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, and that is his Father, God the Father. So what do we learn from all this? Because let me tell you, there's a whole lot to learn. There is a tremendous amount of truth here for us to apply to our lives even today. So what do we take away from this? Well, notice this, if you want to follow along in your notes. Here's the first thing we learn. 
Our need to trust God when wronged is much greater than we ever imagined. Our need to trust God when wronged is much greater than we ever imagined. Listen, I'll be the first one to admit, it is so much easier to trust God as Father when life is going well, is it not? It is easy to put my confidence in God when the blessings of life are abundant and when friends stand true by your side to support you. It is easy to trust God at those moments of life. But when your rights are violated, when your reputation is trashed by those who thought were your friends, listen, it's just as easy then in those moments to question if God is really in charge. Does he really care about me? Is he even there? I love the question Warren Wiersbe, who was a longtime pastor and uh, written many, many books and commentaries, he asked this question. It's profound. Listen to it. He says, is your faith shaken by the weakness of sinners or the weakness of saints? I think sometimes we have to answer yes to that. It is. Sometimes our faith is shaken. Author Erwin Lutzer tells this story of a woman whose husband tried to destroy her, poisoning the attitude of their four children against her. And she said, I don't see God at all. He is nowhere in this. Listen, perhaps you're here this morning, you can identify with this woman. Maybe we all can identify with this woman, for we all have at times felt abandoned by God. And we tell ourselves no father could watch his child suffer unjustly. But Christ's father remained firm in the presence of unrestrained wickedness. Jesus knew he could depend on his father even when evil seemed to be out of control. So here's the question we must answer for ourselves. We must honestly look within our hearts and ask ourselves, listen, can I cry out, Father, when I am being crucified? Not crucified literally, but listen, in those times when we think we are being crucified, when it seems like we're being crucified by friends or neighbors or by a coworker or whoever it may be, when life isn't going right for us, when we're in the midst of trials, can we cry out in confidence to our God and our Father without an unwavering faith? Listen, it's in those moments that it reveals what we believe about God. Do we have a father-son, a father-daughter relationship where no matter what is happening, our confidence does not waver? So the first truth this prayer for forgiveness shows us is Jesus, the Son of God. It shows us his own confidence in God when man was doing his very worst to the Son of God. The second truth is, it shows us Jesus' great love for sinners. It shows us Jesus' great love for sinners. Surrounded by jeering taunts, weakened by the loss of blood, Jesus' lips were moving. What was he trying to say? Was he groaning with pain? Did he mumble words of self-pity? Did he curse those who crucified him? No. 
Jesus cried out for forgiveness for his enemies. Think about it. When man had done his worst, when the vileness of the human heart was displayed in all its ugliness, when the creature crucified the creator, that's when Jesus' great love triumphed most. You realize Jesus could have prayed, Father, consume them. Just wipe them out. Jesus could have prayed that. After all, they had just crucified the Son of God. What could be worse than that? But Jesus' request was not for himself, but for them. And by the way, for you and I as well. His first thought is to plead in prayer for his enemies when he prayed simply, Father, forgive them. Which brings us to two observations I want us to see about this prayer of Jesus. This prayer for his enemies. Look at the first observation. Number one, Jesus' prayer for his enemies was a fulfillment of prophecy. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. Do you realize over 700 years before the crucifixion, or, or I'm sorry, over 700 years before Jesus was even born, the prophet Isaiah made several predictions about the suffering of our Savior in Isaiah chapter 53. We won't take time to turn there, but you can read it on your own there in Isaiah 53. And what Isaiah does, he makes these prophecies and statements about Jesus, and Jesus fulfills every one of them. In fact, Isaiah tells us Jesus would be despised and rejected by man. And that's exactly what was taking place here. That he would be a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering, which is what is taking place here on the cross. Later on in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, he he says that Jesus would be numbered with the transgressors. What that means is, the two criminals on either side that were crucified with Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He goes on, he says, he will make intercession for the transgressors, which is a fulfillment of what Jesus is doing even now. In his first word from the cross, as he reached the climax of his suffering, Jesus had no venom in his voice. He had no sarcasm in his speech. He had no wrath in his words. Instead, Jesus prayed, get this, for his enemies which just shows you that Jesus believed no one, I mean no one, is beyond the reach of prayer. Whoa! I'm so thankful for his prayer. Because that's me. That's you. But the second observation is this. It was not only a fulfillment of prophecy, but Jesus' prayer for his enemies was an example of his teaching. It was an example of his teaching. In his Sermon on the Mount, you can read about that, one of the greatest sermons, in fact, I would say the greatest sermon ever preached. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus taught his followers in Matthew 5, verse 44. Listen to what he says. Love your enemies. Whoa, that's hard. Bless those who curse you. Whoa, that's really hard. Do good to those who hate you. Now you're stepping on toes. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, step back from that. Do you know what this means? This means Jesus practiced what he preached. He practiced what he preached. At the cross, rather than calling down curses upon his enemies, 
or calling upon the legions of angels to deliver him, Jesus called upon God to be merciful to them. Jesus prayed for their forgiveness. So now the one who taught his followers to pray for their enemies is the very one who is praying for his enemies. He's practicing what he preached. Now, does this mean that we should pray for our enemies today? What do you say? Absolutely it does. What Jesus taught, listen to me, what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount and practiced on the cross is just as true for us today as Christ's followers. Of course, we don't know the future response of those we pray for, do we? And we don't know whether they will seek God's forgiveness, or for that matter, whether they will even seek our forgiveness if they have wronged us. But yes, we are to follow the teaching of Jesus here. We are to follow His example. When our enemies do to us what they did to Him, we are to pray, Father, forgive them. So what do we learn from this? What do we take away from this prayer of Jesus on the cross? Well, I think the second thing we learn is this. The mercy of God is much greater than we ever imagined. Wow! Are you thankful for that one? Amen! Hallelujah! There's something to get excited about. I don't know about you, but I'm a sinner. Or am I the only one? I'm thankful for the mercy of God, and it's greater than we can ever imagine. Listen, Jesus' prayer for his enemies should teach us never to put a limit, get this, on God's saving grace and mercy. And yet, how often do we do that? I mean, we see someone, and that someone may be a friend, it may be a family member, it may even be a foe. And we see someone who is far from God. And we just assume he or she is beyond God's saving grace and mercy. But not so. God loves to save the worst of sinners as a trophy of his abundant mercy. Just listen to what Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, when he kind of talks about his own self. Do you remember what Paul called himself? Before he came to Christ, he was, he said, I am the chief of sinners, the worst of sinners. And now Paul kind of gives a description of that. Listen to his words. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Listen to me this morning. Don't let the sins of your past, and we talked about this last Sunday, don't let the sins of your past hinder you from coming to the cross of Christ for mercy and forgiveness and eternal life. Jesus' prayer shows us that the mercy of God is much greater than we can ever imagine. 
So Jesus' prayer for forgiveness shows us two things so far. It shows us his great confidence in God the Father, but it also shows us the mercy of God is greater than we can ever imagine. His great love for sinners. Number three, the third truth we see, is it shows us our great need for forgiveness. It shows us our great need for forgiveness. Now, we come to perhaps, at least in my opinion, the most shocking part of Jesus' first cry on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them. And then the next phrase, what is it? For they do not know what they do. Listen, if ever a statement seems to be so obviously wrong, this is it. How many of us have ever said to ourselves, perhaps you've even verbalized it to others, man, they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew they were going to hurt me and they went ahead and did it anyway. As most of you know, I have two boys. And let me tell you, I've heard that comment more than once. Jack knew what he was doing when he came into my room and took my stuff. Tyler knew what he was doing when he kicked me. He did it on purpose. Yeah, you guys been there, done that with kids? Your own, right? All right, now Annie up it a notch or two. When we've really been hurt by people in life. And everything inside of us wants to cry out, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they did it anyways. In fact, ratcheted up a whole lot when people have been abused, verbally, emotionally, physically even. Parents have left. You name it. Spouses have walked out in a marriage, broken trust because of adultery or whatever. How many of us have thought when she told that lie, she knew what she was doing? When he had that affair, he knew what he was doing. When they spoke bad against me, they knew it would hurt me, and they said it anyways and did it on purpose. Listen, we have all thought those things. So how? How could Jesus say of his enemies, they do not know what they do? I mean, here's the question. Look at it. It's in your notes. Were Jesus' enemies really ignorant of what they were doing? Well, here's the answer. They knew what they had done, but they did not know all they had done due to their spiritual blindness. Were the people who crucified Jesus ignorant of what they were doing? Listen to me and listen to me carefully. Of course not. They knew what they were doing. Judas... Remember him, one of the twelve disciples? He knew he was betraying a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The Jewish leaders knew they were bribing false witnesses against Jesus to make their charges stick. Pilate knew he was condemning an innocent man who was called king of the Jews. 
The crowd knew what they meant when they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. The Roman soldiers knew they were crucifying a man on the cross. And yet Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So what does this mean? It means all of these people, listen to me, they were not ignorant of the facts of their guilt. But they were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. In other words, they didn't really know they were crucifying the very Son of God. Paul agrees with this when he writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, listen to what he says, None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And perhaps the obvious question we all ought to have and be asking right now, well, man, how is that possible? How could they not understand what they were doing? How could they not understand that they were crucifying the Son of God? Listen, it's because of their spiritual blindness. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it's in your notes as well. Paul writes this, and he says, The God of this age. Now, who's the God of this age? It's Satan. The God of this age that is the prince of power on this, on this earth is Satan himself. And the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So although Jesus' enemies knew what they had done, they did not know all that they had done. Does this mean that they are not guilty? What do you think? Are they guilty or not guilty? Listen, make no mistake about it. Judas was guilty. The Jewish leaders were guilty. Pilate was guilty. The crowd was guilty. The soldiers were guilty. And by the way, we are guilty too because of our sin. Don't overlook the fact that even sins of ignorance need forgiveness. You say, why? Because ignorance is not the same thing as innocence. Let me say that again. Ignorance is not the same thing as innocence. Let me give you an example of this. Next time you're speeding down the highway, going 85 miles an hour down 169, and the policeman pulls you over, just try telling him, I didn't know. Had no idea I was going that fast. Had no idea what the speed limit was. I didn't know it was 60 miles an hour. Try pleading innocence, I mean ignorance, to the police officer. And then when he goes ahead and gives you a ticket, just sign up to go to court and plead ignorance and see what the judge says. See how that works for you. Listen, ignorance is not the same thing as innocence. Jesus did not pray, Father, they don't know what they are doing, so just let them go free. Instead, Jesus prayed for their what? What did He pray for? Their forgiveness. Listen, you don't need 
forgiveness unless you are guilty. As one author writes, God never lowers his standard of justice to the level of our ignorance. Sins committed in ignorance are still sins. This means those who crucified Jesus were guilty regardless of how much they understood or didn't understand. And we see the very proof of this guilt in the book of Acts. You can go there to chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Look at what it says. When Peter stands up and he begins to preach to the Jewish people in a sermon, and he says this, almost like pointing a finger to them, he says, listen, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Who's the holy and righteous one? Jesus is. You disowned him. You despised him. You rejected him. And you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed, Peter says, the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. And then he says, get this, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in what? Ignorance. As did your leaders. And yet, what's interesting... In verse 19, Peter still tells them, but listen to me, here's what you need to do with the guilt of your sin. Here's what you need to do with that guilt of ignorance. Sin. Look what he says. He says, very first word, what is it? Repent. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So again, let's stop and answer the question, what do we learn from this? What do we take away? Well, I think one thing we learn is that our sin is much greater than we ever imagined. Our sin is much greater than we ever imagined. And folks, listen to me. The reason... We have no idea of the greatness of our sin is because we have no idea of the greatness of our God. But Paul reminds us, oh, how Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, when he says what? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the holiness of God, the standard of God. So yes, our sin, listen to me, is much greater than we ever imagined. And this means our need for forgiveness is much greater than we ever imagined as well. If this prayer shows us anything, it shows us that we are all guilty and need to repent in order for our sins to be forgiven. Now this brings us to our ultimate question. Perhaps even the most important question that we could pause and ask and answer this morning. And that question is this. Did God answer Jesus' prayer? Did God answer the prayer that Jesus prayed? Now, before we answer this, it's probably already on the screen. This answer is place a significant impact or has a significant impact on our lives today. So here's the answer. Did God answer Jesus' prayer? Yes, 
but it came at a great cost. It came at a great cost, and that is the death of his son, Jesus, on the cross. And the reason it came at a great cost is because forgiveness does not come cheap. Have you figured that out yet? And the reason it does not come cheap is because, listen to me, God is a holy God. He is a just God. And a just God must act what? Justly. And He must do what is right. So, the question then is, what is just when it comes to our sins? What is right when it comes to our sins? Well, the right thing is that sin should be judged and then punished. That is the right thing. That is the just thing. This means that the leaders who plotted against Jesus Christ, this means the Pilate who judged, this means the people who cried out for Jesus' death, and the soldiers who killed should have been judged and punished for their sins. And yet Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. So how then can a just God answer this prayer? How can God forgive and be just at the same time? Because folks, listen to me. If God ceases to be just and holy, then he ceases to be God. So how does God answer this prayer and still remain just and holy? The answer is the cross. That's what's so beautiful about this. It is because Jesus was taking the place of sinners in his death. Taking your place and mine. And he was able to pray, Father, forgive them. Listen, and God was able to forgive because he was not simply forgetting about their sins. He was not simply overlooking sin. He was dealing with it. He was providing for its just punishment. But God was punishing sin in the person of who? His Son. Rather than in the person of the sinner. And folks, this is the very heart of God seen on the cross. Forgiving, but at a tremendous cost. Now, does this mean everyone connected with the crucifixion was forgiven though? Is that what this means? That everyone there over 2,000 years ago that was connected with crucifying Jesus Christ, does that mean they were just forgiven? No. Listen, this was not a general prayer giving a blanket pardon to all who were involved in the crucifixion. Listen, many people that day died in their sins. You say, why? Because they did not do what Peter preached in Acts. They did not repent of their sins and seek God's forgiveness that was being provided through Jesus' death on the cross. But we also know that many people were forgiven because why? Because they did repent of their sins and they did seek forgiveness. We know this because of the book of Acts. Listen, as a result of Peter's sermon, do you realize that some 2,000 people repented and accepted Jesus as their Messiah? 
And then in addition to the 3,000 people who repented and believed on the day of Pentecost. So that's a total of 5,000 people. And you say, who's that? The same people who were there that day. These are Jews. And later on we read that a great number of the temple priests confessed Jesus as Lord in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. Why was this happening? Listen, all of this is in answer to Jesus' prayer for forgiveness Why dying on the cross? Folks, listen to me. Jesus' prayer is still being answered today. Every time somebody comes to Christ. I'm so thankful that God answered this prayer. Years ago, there was a billboard along the highway... It showed a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross with his head bowed. And in big, bold letters, the caption read, It's your move. It's your move. And what I want to do, I want to close with two questions that may help you make your move. And the first question is this. Have you been forgiven for your sins? Have you been forgiven for your sins? Listen, in praying for the forgiveness of his enemies, you know what Jesus was doing? He was striking right down to the root of their need, their greatest need. And their need is the same as our need today. Forgiveness for our sins. Listen, we're all guilty of sin. We're all complicit in the death of Jesus. And each of us stands here today in need of forgiveness. Some of you perhaps think you've done something so bad that you can never be forgiven. But no one, listen to me, is beyond the reach of Jesus' prayer of forgiveness. Even 2,000 years later, no one is good enough to save himself, just as no one is so bad that God cannot save you even today. So have your sins been forgiven by God? Can you claim by faith in Jesus Christ what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the what? The forgiveness of sins. That's the first question. Have you been forgiven? Question number two is, have you forgiven others who have wronged you? Have you forgiven others who have wronged you? Again, I go back to the statement I made at the beginning. Forgiveness, man, it sounds like such a great idea until you're the one who has to do it. And yet, as Christ followers, it's our duty, it's our calling, and I would even go so far as to say it's our privilege to forgive even as God forgave us in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.13 says, Forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Listen, the key, the key here to forgiving is to remember how much Christ has forgiven you. To remember that Jesus forgave us when we were, can I say this, when we were unforgivable. In our own sin. 
You see, this is where the words of Jesus become so very personal. Because indirectly, we're included in this prayer when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And if we're honest, we all have to admit that we're not that much different than those people who were there 2,000 years ago. We're not that much better than them, than those who crucified Jesus, because it was our sin that crucified Him too. Do you know what keeps us from forgiving the people who hurt us? Do you know what stands in the way of us forgiving them? At the root of it, it is this. We think we're better than they are. We think we would never hurt anybody the way they have hurt me. Oh, how foolish. Oh, how deluded we are when we think that way. It is our false pride that keeps us from forgiving the unforgivable. Now, I'm not suggesting by any shape of any, well, I don't even know what the saying is, by any imagination here, I'm not suggesting that it's easy to forgive. Listen, to forgive us cost Jesus his life. And to forgive others will cost us something as well. We will have to give up our anger. We will have to turn away from our bitterness. We will have to release the rightful revenge and decide to forgive those who don't deserve it. But can I say this? In doing so, we will be set free from bondage. We will be set free from bitterness that eats away at our soul. We will be more like Jesus than ever before. For we will be like Him when He was on the cross, crying out to His Father in confidence and in love for His enemies. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. With your heads bowed. Let me ask you again, This is our response time of the service. It's the time to respond to what God has taught us here through His Word. So let me ask you again, have you been forgiven for your sins? Do you know God's forgiveness because you have put your trust in Jesus Christ? If not, then man, let me encourage you to come to the cross even right now as the praise team begins to sing here in a moment. Come to the cross of Jesus Christ in prayer and repent of your sin and ask God to forgive you by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. I know many of you have already done that. And some of you are hanging on to grudges and bitterness because you've been hurt. And the challenge for you is to forgive those who have wronged you. Listen, if you don't root it out, it will short-circuit God's grace and blessing in your life. So let me encourage you to come to the cross and just let it go. Release it to God in prayer. Right now, while the praise team begins to sing, will you respond?
Will you respond? Run to the cross.